Well, friends, if you'd please turn your attention with me to Mark chapter 13. We're looking at verses 24 to 27 today. Mark 13, 24 to 27. And a little bit more, an additional note on the choice to sing joy to the world earlier today. And um, Terry's right. It's always a good time to have joy in the Lord and to rejoice in our King. One thing that's interesting about that song is it's become a very traditional first Advent hymn, which of course is what Christmas is celebrating. But my understanding is that it was first written, I think, by Isaac Watts as a celebration of the second Advent, of the return of Christ. And if you listen to the lyrics, there's actually nothing particularly Christmassy about it. It's about Jesus coming. Of course, part of the the joy of the first Advent is that it anticipates all that Christ will, will finally do. So it's a fitting song to sing at Christmas time. But it's also a really good song to sing when we're about to hear a sermon on the second coming of Christ, which is what uh, is in order for us today. So I'm going to read our text this morning and then pray for our time, pray for God's blessing on our time and go from there. This is the word of the Lord, Mark 13, verses 24 to 27. This is Jesus talking. But in those days, after that tribulation... The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars, from, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the ends of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Our God, we approach these words humbly acknowledging that we need your help understanding intellectually, and also we need help with our hearts accepting and receiving what Jesus has to say to us. We thank you that your word is powerful to bring about the change that it declares. It is like fire that burns, and it is like a hammer that shatters a rock. It has wonderful, life-giving things to do, corrective things, judging things, condemning at times, but mostly your message to us and to all who believe in Christ is life and assurance and joy and to help us to see how good the gospel is, how good Christ and his coming are. So I pray for myself in proclaiming your word and all of us in hearing it, that we would have hearts that are tuned to what Jesus is saying and that your spirit would bring about the desired effects in our hearts, in our affections, in our thinking, and in our lives. We we pray for you to bring about more than we could ask or imagine for your glory in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you heard of Japanese holdouts? These were soldiers and sailors who fought in the Pacific theater of World War II who didn't surrender when the war ended. These guys were scattered all around the footprint of Japanese wartime occupation. And according to that great repository of human knowledge, Wikipedia, where I did rigorous research on the Japanese holdouts, quote, Japanese holdouts either doubted the veracity of the formal surrender, were not aware that the war had ended because communications had been cut off by Allied advances, feared they would be killed if they surrendered to the Allies, or felt bound by honor to never surrender. 
end quote. And the article goes on to say about these guys that they, quote, continue to fight local police, government forces, and allied troops stationed to assist the newly formed governments in those lands. Many holdouts were discovered in the jungles of Southeast Asia and the Pacific over the following decades. With an S, decades. <laughs> with the last verified holdout, Private Teruo Nakamura surrendering on the island of Morotai in 1974. There were reports of some others later, but I, my understanding is he's the last kind of verified one. Can you imagine the fear and isolation that these men lived with? and must have endured over those years. And you can even imagine the loneliness of holding out in some isolated place in the jungle for 29 years after the end of the war. Who knows when he started there. It is a tragic human story. And it's, we could think, what a waste of prime years of these guys' lives. They're scattered, surrounded, holding out in an enemy land for a cause that has long passed them by. Nobody at home cares about the, the cause that they're holding out for. Nobody's even dreaming of coming to rescue them and reinforce them. And surely this is how the church of Jesus Christ sometimes feels in the world. We have a very different cause, I'll be quick to say. But scattered and beleaguered and holding out. But for how long? And for what prospects are we waiting well, we're continuing today in our four-part journey through Mark chapter 13 and the so-called Olivet Discourse in Mark. This is Jesus' long message that he gave his disciples, four of his disciples in particular, about the temple and the future before he went to the cross. And as we saw two weeks ago, this all started in verses 1 to 4 when Jesus declared that this beautiful and grandiose Jerusalem temple was about to come down at some point. It would be destroyed. And this would be God's rejection of a religious system that had rejected God in rejecting his Christ. His fullest expression of himself and his fullest deliverance of salvation. They had turned from Christ. They had rejected Christ and so God was rejecting them. And then after Jesus said that, four of his disciples asked him, well, what will be the time that this is happening and what are the signs that they're about to take place? And what we saw last week was Jesus' answer to those two questions in verses 5 to 23. And as you might recall, uh, we saw that verses 5 to 13 were non-signs that the temple destruction was coming. He's saying, it's not it, it's not this. These things will happen. Don't think that these mean that the temple is about to be destroyed. And these simply describe the state of the world in the era between Jesus' ascension into heaven and his return. It would be, in a sense, business as usual... But it's not uh, a smooth time. It's actually a very turbulent time. Uh, characterized by trouble and war and disaster and false Christs and the persecution of Christians. Then we saw in verses 14 to 23, Jesus zoomed in on a very specific event in that period. And that is the desecration and ruin of God's temple. And the subsequent great tribulation that would necessitate people to flee Jerusalem. And I argued that this took place in the, what's called the First Jewish War of the years 66 to 70. And uh, that's when the Jerusalem Temple was in fact destroyed in, in dramatic and catastrophic fashion. And as I acknowledged last week, many people read verses 14 to 23 and interpret them as events that still lie in the future. And I'm sure some in this congregation take that view, maybe many. 
And that is understandable. I'll acknowledge the, the futurist view of that text, verses 14 to 23, has its arguments. Uh, when we're dealing with predictive prophecy in the Bible, we're always going to be dealing with some degree of obscurity and difficulty and nailing down exactly what the fulfillment is going to look like. And there's so far been no suggested interpretations of last week's text that don't have any vulnerabilities or difficulties. I gave the view that in my mind minimizes the problems. But some of you may disagree. But uh, based on some helpful feedback I received, I do realize I need to clarify something that I said last week. I used the term preterism to describe my position on verses 14 to 23. And preterist simply means it already happened. Um, now this term comes up in other contexts of biblical eschatology, other contexts where we're dealing with what the Bible teaches about the future. And I'm not claiming that wholesale. So for instance, this word comes up in, in there's a preterist view of the book of Revelation that says the whole thing already happened, maybe in the first century. I'm not espousing that view or meaning to claim that by using that word. I only mean it for that limited 10-verse chunk that we saw last week, verses 14 to 23. That already happened, is what I'm arguing. Nor am I even claiming a preterist view for the whole Olivet Discourse, because today's text brings us beyond what's already been done to what hasn't ha happened yet, what's yet to come. And that's what brings us to our verses 24 to 27, today's text, where Jesus describes what happens after what we call the Great Tribulation of verse 19. And it centers on a still future return of Christ. And as we dig into it, I'll try to help us see why Jesus makes this pivot to talking about his future return when he does. But the main idea of what we're going to see here, and as I like to say, kids, if, if you're going to be driving home or at lunch and your parents might ask you, parents, this is a good idea, what was the sermon about? Did you catch anything? Were you just doodling and daydreaming the whole time? This is it, kids. This is what you tell your parents. This is the main idea. Disciples can't miss out on the glory and salvation of Jesus coming. Disciples can't miss out on the glory and the salvation of Jesus coming. And we'll break this wonderful promise or this wonderful guarantee of, uh, we'll see it's such a relief that Jesus says this, we'll break it down to three assurances that this passage teaches. Three assurances. And the first one is in verses 24 to 25, you won't misread his coming. You won't misread his coming. Jesus says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now the very first word here, but, is an important one. Obviously Jesus is drawing a contrast. And after that he gives two time markers. And the two time markers we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. In those days and after that tribulation. The but, of course, sends us back to the immediately preceding verses to ask, what are you contrasting with? And when Jesus was predicting the chaos that would come upon Jerusalem and require people to flee for safety, in verses 21 to 23, he warned against false pretenders who would claim to be who he is, the Christ. Remember he said that? And if anyone says you, look here is the Christ, or look there he is, I guess it's others claiming that Christ is somewhere on, on, on his behalf, pointing them in different directions. Go, go look there and find the Christ. He says, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, 
the elect. He said, watch out. There will be people claiming to be me, even performing miracles to draw people away to themselves. Now, it's not hard to imagine how people in a vulnerable situation like what we read about in verses 14 to 23 might be vulnerable to this kind of deception. Now, events, even if, if, if my view is correct, and we see this is something that happened in history long ago, many centuries ago, and it was local, and now it's just a blip in history. But I assure you, if, that, if you were living through these times, it would feel like the sky was falling. There's actually many historical events that we can read about in history and think, wow, that's, that's interesting. If you were living through it, it would feel like the world was coming to an end. And so in the midst of that, people would naturally be disposed to looking for end times things including Christians seeking the promised return of their victorious Messiah. We know he's coming back and they're going, oh, I heard a rumor he's back now. Everything's falling apart. The cosmos are being shaken. It, it seems like he's coming back. And we can be assured that in a situation like that, Satan, the father of lies, would show up in a big way. He would not miss the opportunity to deceive, to have his hooks in the water, trying to catch people in that vulnerable time. So that's why today's four verses are here. Strictly speaking, Jesus talking about his second coming is not directly relevant to the question of when is this temple going to be destroyed. Remember, that's the question that, that his disciples asked him and he answered. But we come to find that there is relevance here because Jesus is contrasting the real with the counterfeit. He's just said, don't fall for pretenders during this vulnerable time. And now he's saying, rather, this is what it will be like. When I come. This is the real thing that's going to happen when I come. And, and Matthew's parallel to our text adds a few verses that I think really help fill in this logic. I think that logic is implicit in Mark. Matthew makes it very explicit. In Matthew 24, verse 26 to 28. And Jesus says there, this would be right before our verse 24. Jesus says, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. End quote. And this is a, a cryptic parable Jesus is using, proverb. What is this about corpses and vultures? Seems to me like he's saying, just as opportunistic as a vulture is sure to show up when there's a dead body somewhere, so these false pretenders, these, these false Christs, will show up and exploit the chaos. And their message will be, hey, come look in this corner and find Christ. Or, hey, let's go out in the desert and find Christ. He's gathering his people. It's this inside knowledge, this exclusive opportunity. You can get in on the ground floor and make sure you don't miss out. So here's Jesus saying, no, no. That's not what it's going to be like when I come back. When I come back, you cannot miss it. You cannot miss it. Now about those time markers I mentioned in verse 24, in those days after that tribulation, I believe he's referring to by those days, the days that what I call the fabric of time, verses 5 to 13, the whole era between Jesus' ascension to heaven and his return. During that span of time, in those days, And after that tribulation, which I take to be the one he just described in verses 14 to 23, during that span of time, after that specific point, that tribulation that he called the great tribulation in verse 19, sometime 
after that point is the event he now describes. Now this checks out, but we might ask, well, how long after? He just says, after these days. He doesn't say. Um, predictive prophecies are like this. They sometimes describe events. And then the, the way the prophet tells it, it's just one after another. And you kind of think these are just going to happen in close succession. But when it comes to the fulfillment, what you realize is that the, that the events happen hundreds of years apart. You see some of these in how the Old Testament prophecies are, are fulfilled. And some, sometimes first coming of Christ is part of the fulfillment. And then the second coming will be fulfillment of the thing that the prophet said right after that. I've heard someone use the illustration of stars in a constellation. That when you look up into the sky at night, you see two stars that look like they're right next to each other. And uh, what you can't see is the depth dimension. And what you don't realize is that they may be millions of light years apart in that direction. You have a two-dimensional view. From your limited perspective, they look very close. And that's how future events sometimes look from the perspective of biblical prophecy. So here we are, sometime after the tribulation described in verses 20, I'm sorry, uh, 14 to 23, contrasting with all the pretenders that arise at that point in history, we will have a real return of Jesus. And Jesus describes this event with four parallel future statements, and they have to do with these great lights in heaven and these powers in the heavens that are being nullified, they're being shaken, they're being darkened by this future event. And these terms, really everything Jesus says in these four verses is filled, loaded up with these phrases that recall, that kind of cite Old Testament parallels. And for instance, you see this kind of language of the sun and the moon and the stars going dark in prophetic texts, especially regarding future judgment. Like Isaiah 13, verses 9 to 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. End quote. And, and a similar uh, example is Joel 2 verses 30 to 31 where he says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. End quote. Now, if you are listening, you may have caught... This phrase, the day of the Lord, that occurs in both of those Old Testament prophecies. This is a theme in Old Testament prophecy, and it speaks of some future cataclysmic day of judgment and salvation from God. The day of the Lord. Jesus is speaking in the same way. And it's all a way of communicating that this is a major event that has impact on all of creation. How about the powers of heaven? What does that mean? Well, this phrase, interestingly, it comes up several times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, referring to angels. And it often comes up, it mostly comes up in the context of idolatrous Israel worshiping the hosts of heaven. It's part of the sins that they committed and failing their covenant before they went into exile. So, for instance, in 2 Kings 17, 16, we hear about how they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven. That's this phrase, the powers of the heavens that we have. And served Baal. So this idea, we're probably talking about angelic powers. Some of which Israel in their idolatry worshipped. Potentially uh, good and evil. Angels and demons. 
But altogether, we're talking about a major event that touches on and potentially disrupts all of creation. From the highest heavens to the lowest earth, Jesus' coming will affect everything. There's no corner of the world that will lie above the waterline, so to speak. Now, should we literally expect these celestial bodies to go out? Maybe. Maybe. Sometimes this prophetic language in the Old Testament is used of earthly events. For instance, the one I read from Isaiah 13 is predicting Babylon coming and conquering Judah. So we understand that's poetic figurative language. Uh, Last week, Tyler preached from Acts 2 where Peter cites on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes. Peter cites that Joel 2 text I read. It's like, and it says, it's here. It's like, what about the moon turning to blood and columns of smoke? There seems to be kind of a poetic um, use of that language. But after all, the coming of Christ will be the grand finale of the whole creation as we know it. And, and I think it's wise. John Calvin in his commentary concludes and he says, the event itself will show whether this is exactly what it looks like. But what's clearly being communicated is to contrast the idea of a secret Christ who's hidden in a room somewhere. Hidden in the wilderness somewhere. He's saying, hey, psst, guys, come over here. I'm back. <laughs> no, this, is, this evocative imagery presses home the idea this is an obvious public arrival. And you cannot miss it. Last week I pointed out that a lot of the, that eschatological speculation that we see in the world today, maybe things that appeal to our own hearts, has us looking around in the world to discern the times. Major world events, turmoil happening or threatening to happen, can cause us to feel uneasy and maybe wondering, what do I need to know? Am I at risk of missing out on something? Do I need to decode the signs? It's like we're all a bunch of investors And uh, I don't really know how investors operate. Maybe Harry could correct me (laughs) if I'm wrong later about how it works to be an investor. But I could imagine them kind of talking together, listening to the scuttlebutt and catching rumblings about some big thing that's coming, something that's afoot. Oh, the the Fed's going to raise the interest rate, I heard, something like that. And you might feel like you're going to miss out if you don't hear everything. You've got to kind of put the pieces together and read the signs. You don't want to get caught flat-footed and miss out and everyone's in on something. That may be how we feel regarding the end. Like, I don't want to miss out on something. I don't want to misunderstand. And there's this never-ending conveyor belt of Christian media products that are eager to feed that nervousness and get us thinking about what to look for. Today, again, Jesus' predictions address these fears, and he's saying, when I come, you will not miss it. The next big thing in the Bible's timeline will be this massive public creation-bending event where the manifest glory of Jesus appears in the sky to every eye. Now, open parentheses. Now, when I say the next big thing, some of you might be wondering, hey, what about the rapture? Allow me a moment on the rapture. Now, there's, a, there's another area of eschatology where we're going to find differing views among Christians, and probably among some of us here. Some believe, and our, our church statement of faith states, that Jesus' coming happens in two phases, where the first one is imminent. It's, it's one that could happen at any time in which Jesus will gather up his church to heaven with him, and that's what's called the rapture. And then the second phase comes seven years later when he comes to finish his coming. He comes to conquer and judge and do all the rest. Now, others piece it together differently and see all these things happening at once in one event. He's coming to gather his church, the rapture, so to speak, bringing his church up with him, 
and uh, to judge and ushering everything to its final end at once. Now, what am I saying about the rapture here? Nothing direct. Uh, there's no single eschatological text that will answer all of our questions or say everything that there is to say. As I'm seeking to expound on Jesus' words with what I hope is transparency and clarity, you can consider whether it seems like the Olivet Discourse gives room for a separate rapture event or not. I'll just leave that to you as you're piecing it together and other biblical texts. Does that make sense? <laughs> Close parentheses. But when Jesus comes, I mean, we might wonder about things like the, the, the geometry or the physics of this. Like, this is a spherical earth. How is it that everyone can see? Don't worry about that. God created the heavens and the earth with his words. There's plenty of unrevealed mystery about how exactly this might happen. But he can take care of that. The, the main point is that we will not miss it. We will by no means miss it. Now, what is the value of this truth for our future pointing hope? What difference does it make? I would argue this is not a small detail. Rather, it is, it is a truth that lifts a massive burden potentially from our shoulders. Because what it means is we don't have to discern the true Messiah from counterfeit claimants to being the Messiah in terms of is Jesus back? He will make himself impossible to miss. We don't have to squint our eyes and seek him out. He will come and present himself to us. We don't have to seek insider knowledge. He will broadcast his appearance in the sky, like that Matthew text. It's like the lightning that just goes across the sky. You can't miss it. We don't have to make changes in our world to make it possible for Jesus to come back. You have people saying that. We've got to do certain things, get the conditions right. No. He'll come when it's time on his timeline. Our role here is actually incredibly passive. In these verses, he's not telling them to do anything. We're not being called to get up and do anything. Now, next week, we're going to see there is an action point. But right now, with regard to his coming, the idea is Jesus is relieving us of a burden of having to figure out something that we are totally incapable of figuring out. He's saying, I'm coming for you, and you'll know when I'm there. We'll know it's happening when it's happening. I want you to imagine a world-class Grammy-winning musician who decides to show up incognito at an open mic night at some unspectacular coffee house somewhere. And maybe uh, you might not notice he's anything special, just he dresses normally, wears a hat, he can't quite get a good look at his face, milling about in the room. Nobody quite figures out who he is until he gets on the stage with his guitar and starts crooning. And you hear, suddenly everyone realizes, this is something of an entirely different order than everyone else who has performed at this open mic. Glory shines through. And how will you know when you're hearing greatness? You'll know when you hear it. It's the same way with Jesus. How will we know when the Son of Man is back? We will know. So this is incredible encouragement for us. We will know when it happens. We need only to wait. So Jesus' first assurance to us is that we won't misread the event of his coming. The second one is you won't mistake his glory. Verse 26, you won't mistake his glory. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He's saying, you'll see me. And we go, well, what will that look like? I mean, how do you see power and glory? That's something that's kind of interesting question. What would that even look like to see power and glory? Verses 24 and 25 were kind of the signs attending his arrival. Verse 26 is actually seeing him, the Son of Man. Now, he uses this title. He's used it several times if you've been with us in the, in the Gospel of Mark. As Gary prayed, this is something Jesus likes to call himself. It comes out of 
The text we read moments ago, Daniel 7, particularly verses 13 to 14, which I will read again. This is again Daniel reporting a heavenly vision that the Lord gave him. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. End quote. This is a figure who relates to God. By the way, there the Ancient of Days figure is God. He relates to God. He receives things from God, namely an eternal and universal kingdom. But in ruling eternally, you start to think, well, he kind of looks like God himself, doesn't he? It's kind of a God-like thing to do, to reign over all the earth forever. And Jesus uses this language, I think, a little bit ironically throughout Mark because it's a title that emphasizes his glory and his authority. Meanwhile, in the narrative of Mark, he's going about Israel, carrying out his ministry, and his glory is veiled in his humanity and his ordinariness and his humble servitude. And you see this guy who just looks like a guy to a lot of people, and he calls himself the son of man. And you're like, you? Of course, then there are, he does miracles. He does things that he shows shreds of glory that people have to put the pieces together. What does this mean about him? But here we have Jesus predicting that when he shows up again, he will visibly appear as the Son of Man. Right now, when he's talking in his first coming, he's the veiled Son of Man. And he's going to the cross as the veiled Son of Man. But then, in that day, all people will see what they failed to see the first time. His great power, which is like Daniel's dominion, and glory. So again, what will that look like? What does it mean to see his power and glory. Well, Mark has already given us a preview. And Jesus has already, already given three of these four disciples a preview. I'm going to read Mark chapter 8, verse uh, 838 through 9.3. And I want you to listen for all the key terms of our text, especially verses 26 and 27. We have the Son of Man coming. We have angels. We have glory, kingdom, power. It's amazing. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. End quote. The disciples went up this mountain of transfiguration with Jesus and saw a preview of the kingdom of God coming in power. Namely, they saw the manifest brightness and glory of Jesus. They saw heavenly glory, unlike anything the earth could produce in him. So the glory and the authority of the Son of Man, which is veiled throughout his earthly time, their earthly time with Jesus, breaks through a crack in the transfiguration. We don't get much detail, but it's gleaming white. And as the narrative goes on there, and the disciples react to what they're seeing, you could tell it is a captivating and awesome sight. 
And what they saw in preview there, Jesus says, now will come in fullness for everyone to see. The Son of Man coming to consolidate the kingdom that has been awarded to him in heaven. At the throne of God. In the clouds, at the throne of the Ancient of Days, he will receive the title deed to an eternal kingdom. Now he'll come to the earth to claim that prize. And what that means is that the coming of Jesus will finally resolve the tension of his hidden glory. That our Savior is God in the flesh who veiled himself in humble service. One day that tension will be resolved and the glory will be out in the open for all to see and for none to deny. Now his disciples, the church, likewise have an inheritance of future glory with him. But just like Jesus veiled himself in his humanity and his ordinariness and his servant uh, identity of servitude, so the glory of the church lies hidden today. We do not meet in gilded temples. We don't sit on thrones and rule over the nations. People have tried these things in the name of Christianity, but this is not what it's supposed to look like. The world doesn't look at us as they drive past on Eastern Avenue and say, wow. Can you see the glory shining from that place? Those guys are amazing. Something heavenly must be happening. There's not a beam of light coming down from heaven shining on our corner at Eastern and Whitney. The glory is hidden. It's here. It's seen in the quiet imitation of Jesus that we carry out among ourselves, among each other by faith. When we love one another and when we serve one another, when we overlook offenses to forgive one another, when we speak the truth in love to edify one another in Christ, when we confess our sins to one another and declare the forgiveness of the gospel back to one another, when we humbly use our gifts to benefit one another, when we lend our wisdom to one another to wrestle through life's troubles, it is beautiful. It is glorious, but it is a glory the world cannot see. And when Christian missionaries ship out to foreign lands and they live in difficult foreign environments, when they labor on for years among hostile neighbors with very little visible fruit, and when they miss out on opportunities for wealth and prestige and comfort that they could have had if they'd stayed home, all for the sake of Jesus' name and the progress of the gospel, that is beautiful. That is glorious. But it's a glory that the world can't see. It's veiled. But when Jesus' glory is unhidden, ours will be too. Because ours derives from him. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.19, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Have you ever wondered why that word is revealing? The creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed in Christ. As glorious in Christ. 1 John 3, 2 says, What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So we've seen that we won't mistake Jesus' coming and we won't miss his glory when he returns. The glory that was hidden on earth will be revealed in the sky for all to see. And we, the church, will, will be shown in uh, reflected glory from him. The third assurance for us is in verse 27. You won't miss his salvation. You won't miss his salvation. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. 
So what will Jesus do when he gets here? We have the signs that attend his coming. We have his appearance in the sky. And then verse 27, what's he going to actually do? And the answer is, he'll gather his people to himself. He'll come to rescue us and to complete our redemption. And once again, Jesus and Mark are drawing heavily on Old Testament imagery. There is a strain of texts that speak of God gathering his people from the far-flung corners of the earth. And that strain goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 3 to 4. This is amazing. It's the beginning of the covenant. He's giving them his covenant before they enter the land. And there he's saying, oh yeah, when you fail this covenant, and then I respond by sending you off into exile, then I'll do this. And what he says is he'll bring them back. He'll regather them. He says he'll restore them. He'll, quote, gather them again from all the peoples where he has scattered them. He says he'll even gather them from the uttermost parts of heaven. There in Deuteronomy 30. All the way to almost the end of the Old Testament, we see similar language. Zechariah 2, verses 6 and 7. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So, why are God's people scattered? In both contexts, Deuteronomy and Zechariah, he's talking about Israel being taken to Babylon in exile and from there scattered to all corners of the known world. But did you catch where he said in Zechariah, escape to Zion? This Old Testament theme of regathering the exiles had Jerusalem and the temple at its center. It was bringing the people back. The people had rebelled against God in his good land. The place where he dwells with them in his temple. So he has cast them out of Eden again, so to speak. Sent them far from the temple, the place where he met with them. And so restoration in that context means bringing brought near to Zion, the city and the temple where the Lord is near to them in covenant. That's what it means to regather his exiles in Old Testament terms. But the amazing thing here is that Jesus takes the same theme of regathering and he centers it around himself. He will gather his elect from the four winds, the ends of the earth, and the ends of heaven. He'll gather us to himself. It's not Israel returning to a physical temple this time. It's Jesus' believers, Jesus' elect being brought to Jesus, being brought near to him. Now you might wonder, well, why can believers, Jesus' elect, disciples, why can we be imagined as faraway exiles? Why are we, why does this Old Testament terminology of exile apply to us? Well, the New Testament uses exile language for the church of both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, you, you see the Apostle Peter telling Christians in 1 Peter 1.17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Why can every Christian look in the mirror and say, I'm in exile? I've never been kicked out of my homeland. Well, the identity of an exile does fit because we are scattered throughout the world as foreigners who await our return to the place where we really belong. That's what it means to be an exile. We're scattered around the earth waiting for our return to our real home. And now Jesus is telling us that when I come again, I'll go and get you and I will bring you home. But it's, in this case, it's not a place so much as a person. I will bring you to myself. 
Remember last week in verses 5 to 13, we saw him predicting that the disciples would scatter into all the world, preaching the gospel to all the nations, even as they're being persecuted for that message, being hated by the world. Well, where does that leave us? As disciples are dispersing throughout the world with the gospel message, that leaves Christians all over the place, scattered, surrounded, suffering, potentially lonely, beleaguered. We're on these far-flung outposts. We're taking heavy fire. We're feeling like we can't hold out much longer. And he's saying, I'm coming to get you. It'll be an airlift. And you don't have to strain your eyes and try to like flag down the helicopter from far away. I'm coming right for you. You can't miss it. The church is not only a people of hidden glory, but on top of that, we are scattered. We're outnumbered. We're surrounded. We often feel spread thin and lonely in this world. We have each other, which is a wonderful gift from God. But sometimes in the world, it feels lonely to follow Christ. Can you imagine how the church feels in lands where Christianity is way less prevalent than in ours? Some of these places that we pray for, the persecuted church every week, and we have all these nations that come up on this list where it's like 1% Christian, 98% Muslim, or something like that. Just imagine how lonely that would feel, how outnumbered, how scattered God's people feel. And in circumstances like that, it can feel impossible to imagine anything different. But Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7, that Jesus' coming will mean On the one hand, repayment of affliction for his enemies, for the ways they afflicted his people. So it's judgment. On the other hand, it's granting relief for those who waited for him. That's what it means, judgment and salvation. Fortunes will flip. The tables will turn. Those righteous who were oppressed will triumph by the salvation and the glory that Jesus alone brings. The wicked will be swept away into judgment by the power of his arm alone. So if we feel alienated in this world and we feel like we don't belong here and we feel like outsiders and exiles, good. That's what we are. That's how we should feel. Now we should be active neighbors and engaged citizens and seek the good of the place where God has placed us. That's true. But we're not home here. We should feel like strangers here. And the solution to that is waiting for Christ to come and bring us home. He's coming to bring us to himself. And just like the glory will be unmissable, so the salvation will be. Notice in verse 27, he's not telling them, again, he's not telling them they'll have to do anything. You don't have to climb some ladder. You don't have to solve a puzzle. You don't have to get yourself anywhere. The angels will come and pick us up and bring us to him. He's like, I'll send my guy to give you a ride. He's going to do it all for us. We don't have to do anything. If we're believing in Christ, if we're in him, we don't have to do anything to benefit from his return. He will do it all. We don't have to be like those poor Japanese soldiers who didn't get the memo, stranded out there for decades, holdouts in a war they have already long ago lost. When it comes to Jesus returning and and our benefiting from the salvation he brings... The tenor of this text and the main thing God wants to do in our hearts today is to relieve us of a burden. That we're not guessing in this. We're not guessing. We're not straining. We're not striving. Salvation is coming in the sky. Heaven and earth will bow in reverence. And you simply cannot miss it if you're in Christ. 
Now, the world thinks it's a small and inconsequential thing to ignore Jesus. Of course, many are completely ignorant of him. They don't really know anything about him. There's many others, especially here in our land, who know something about Jesus and his claims. And yet they feel no urgency to determine where they stand with him. Maybe some of you in this room today, this describes you. What's the big deal? He's just some ancient figure uh, receded into the, the mists of time and myth. Uh, may, yeah, you know, maybe a lot of people seem to find value in, in his teachings. Maybe someday I'll look into it and find out what I believe, but it doesn't seem like a big deal to me one way or another. The moment when Jesus comes, that illusion will pop like a little soap bubble. It seemed very safe to ignore Jesus. It seemed very safe to put Jesus off during your time on earth. That will all change right away. When that moment comes, he will be impossible to ignore, and you and I will have to deal with him. And really, at that point, it'll just be a matter of how do we respond to him in this life coming to fruition. Of course, I've been heralding to the church here what a beautiful thing that'll be for each of us. He's coming to bless. He's coming to save. He's coming to glorify us in his own glory. But all that is predicated on belief. It's all predicated on a positive response to Jesus' call that we heard at the beginning of this gospel, that the good news of the kingdom of God is here in me. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is the king and Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the crux, the main issue, the dividing point. Whether or not this is a good day for you when he turns, all depends, it all hangs on what are you going to do with Jesus now? Do you trust him? Or do you stiff arm him and put him off? Will you be gathered when he comes? Disciples can't miss out on the glory and salvation of Jesus coming. We will not misread the event. It won't be subtle. It'll tear heaven open and it'll shake all of creation. You won't mistake his glory. It was hidden during his first advent. But the beauty and the goodness and the authority and the inestimable value of the Son of Man will then be revealed plainly for all to see and marvel at. And when the Son of God is revealed, the sons of God will be revealed as well. And today's hidden churchy glory will burst into the open for all to marvel at. Because this is a preeminent place where God dwells. And we won't miss his salvation. So beleaguered church, if you're frustrated with following Christ in a contrary world, endure. Don't lift up your eyes to search out signs in the sky. Lift up your head with hope and confidence because he's coming to rescue you. He's coming to bring you home. He's coming to bring us to himself. Let's pray. God, we pray that the assurance that Jesus gives here of how complete this final act of redemption will be for us and how clear his glory will be Please assure every heart here. Cause every heart to be trusting in this Christ who atoned for our sin on the cross, who is the God-man, the promised king. As we cling to him and as we come to him as refugees and sinners in need of grace, we pray that you would bolster every soul with great assurance that he's coming for us, that all salvation is of him.
not ourselves. Give us singularity of vision about the world and, and keep us away from distractions that would cause us to be confused about these things, cause us to put our focus where it ought not to be, and cause us to have the eyes of faith to see how beautiful that day will be and to live every day before then in light of that day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.